Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Gut Doctor Podcast. Today we return to our GI 101 series where we discuss bread and butter gastroenterology with one of our trainees. Today we will be discussing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth with Dr. Mariana Mavilia, a gastroenterology fellow at the University of Connecticut. Dr. Mavilia, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Dr. Parikh, for having me. So let's get right into it. Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or SIBO, can be a nebulous topic. So can you define it for us? Sure. So uh, SIBO is defined as the presence of excessive number of bacteria in the small bowel that cause gastrointestinal symptoms. In normal circumstances, uh, the number of bacteria in the GI tract tend to increase as you move from proximal to distal. In the small intestine, uh, there's a bit of a range in the literature, but somewhere between 10 to the third and 10 to the fourth power colony forming units per ml of gastrointestinal fluid is considered to be elevated. And that's when you can tend to start having symptoms. That's a lot of bacteria. So what are the typical symptoms of SIBO? So the symptoms, uh, the typical symptoms are fairly nonspecific and can range. Um, But typically what happens is when you have increased numbers of bacteria, the organisms will ferment carbohydrates and produce gas, bloating, and then this will produce abdominal pain, distension, things like that. Um, The increased bacteria can also deconjugate bile acids, which contributes to diarrhea and sometimes even steatorrhea. Um, And then more severe disease, you can get weight loss and then deficiencies in iron, B12, um, and even fat-soluble vitamins. So those are, um, those are the typical things that um, we see with pe- people that have this disease. Interesting. I wasn't aware of the steatorrhea. Um, those are um, quite a diverse presentation, very nonspecific, and I guess that's what makes it so tricky. Um, who is at risk for SIBO? So we should think about SIBO in patients, uh, certain groups of patients. So um, particularly patients with motility disorders. So things like scleroderma, amyloidosis, gastroparesis, opioid use, things that can slow, anything that can slow gut motility. Um, And that's because these things can lead to increased stasis in the bowel and promote that overgrowth. Um, Along similar lines, it's also more common in people with structural abnormalities. So things like strictures or diverticula in the small bowel also can cause stasis and um, increase the risk for overgrowth. And then another common group is uh, post-surgical patients. So patients who've undergone bariatric surgery, who have blind loops, patients with IBD who've had IC valve resection or, or IC valve resection for any reason, these things can cause increased bacteria refluxing back into the small bowel and give you more risk uh, for having the overgrowth. Um, There's a couple of other uh, things that have been cited in the literature as increasing the risk. Um, Interestingly, chronic um, acid suppression. So our our chronic PPI users 
um, the acid tends to help suppress bacterial colonization. And so when you have patients that are chronically suppressed, they are actually have been found to have about a three times greater risk of SIBO um, when they're using PPIs or other acid suppression chronically. And then lastly, there's kind of a hodgepodge of miscellaneous things that have been found to be at risk, <clears throat> uh, including people with immunodeficiencies, chronic pancreatitis, diabetes, obesity, um, NASH. Um, and these, I, I don't think we fully understand the reason why they're a more at-risk population um, as much as with the previously mentioned uh, risk factors. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention is um, with, there is a, a well-described association with irritable bowel syndrome. And I think we commonly associate this with IBS-D or IBS diarrhea predominant, um, just because of uh, the tendency to have diarrhea as one of the main symptoms of SIBO. But interestingly, uh, SIBO is also associated with IBS constipation predominant and IBS mixed. Um, and we can talk about that a little later on as well. I, I will say that, you know, I've had patients in the office who, you know, have been labeled, whether correctly or incorrectly, as IBS in the past. And they've come up to the office for with a second or third opinion asking, you know, could this be SIBO? So, you know, we definitely see that overlap. And I think part of, you know, when we started, it makes this all murky is that it's hard to differentiate um, between the two conditions. And I think part of the challenge may be it's, there are conditions, these both conditions are not easy to diagnose. Um, how do we currently diagnose SIBO? Yeah, good question. So the gold standard for diagnosis is actually small bell aspirate where you measure the directly measured the number of bacterial uh, units in the small bowel aspirate. However, this is very cumbersome and can be flawed. Uh, so it's not very, very frequently done in clinical practice, so probably almost never. Um, it's more for research purposes. So what we typically do clinically is a breath test. So this can be either glucose breath testing or lactulose breath testing. There are some other uh, substances that are used as well, but less commonly. So glucose and lactulose breath testing are the most common. Um, and so what happens with these is a patient will ingest a set amount of either glucose or lactulose. And then breath samples are measured for about 120 minutes um, following the ingestion and they measure um, hydrogen gas and methane gas. Um, and then the breath test is considered to be positive if there's a rise in hydrogen uh, greater than 20 parts per million, if there's a rise in methane greater than 10 parts per million, or if there's a combined rise in methane and hydrogen greater than 15 parts per million during that uh, test period. Um, the issue with breath testing is that there's a very wide variability in sensitivity and specificity. And so it can be difficult to interpret the results, whether it's positive or negative. Um, so for that reason, uh, uh, many clinicians tend to um, favor an empiric trial of therapy in patients with a high pretest probability for SIBO and gauge you know, diagnosis based on their response um, which 
is one way of um, doing it or else they kind of limit, you can also just sort of limit which groups you're uh, sending for breath tests based on whether they have one of the risk factors or something that's increasing your pre-test probability for the disease. Yeah, we've also run into some logistic logistical issues with the breath testing, you know, um, whether it is physical driving to the location or insurance coverage. Um, I know there's down the, the pipeline more and more at home breath tests. And I, 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 I'm excited because I do think in the future, we may be doing more at home breath tests, which will give us even more data for these patients. Um, you mentioned methane. Um, I think when I was uh, training uh, as a fellow, you know, as a resident, methane wasn't as big of a deal or we weren't as aware of methane production. Uh, what's the clinical significance with methane? Good question. Um, so the, the increase in methane production, it comes from a specific organism. Um, so not the, not the typical organisms that are in the GI tract. Um, and it has, uh, when you have this increased methane production, and as I mentioned, that's greater than 10 parts per million when you do your breath test, um, it's, it has a specific name uh, or like kind of a subgroup of SIBO, which is called intestinal methanogen overgrowth or IMO. Um, and interestingly, this is specifically associated with constipation predominant phenotype um, because methane has been shown, at least in animal models, I'm not aware of any data in humans, but um, to sh the methane has been shown to slow motility of the GI tract. Um, and so this is where we may be seeing that overlap with the more IBS-C group of patients is when they have a methanogen predominant uh, picture. Interesting. Um, so what are the treatment options for SIBO and what algorithm do you suggest we follow? So a, f a few things um, to consider. So usually the first thing, um, and this can be a little bit tricky, is to consider what the risk factors that they may have. Um, a lot of those obviously are not modifiable, but if any of the, those risk factors are modifiable, such as um, you know, PPI use or other chronic acid suppression, you could try minimizing the dose and prevent um, some of their risk towards this. Or uh, for another example, uh, in those obese individuals, you know, counsel them about weight loss to help mitigate some of their risk for uh, overgrowth. So that's sort of one um, aspect of the treatment. Um, but obviously the mainstay of treatment for this is antibiotics. Um, and so this is where um, <clears throat> using the breath test may actually help guide your choice of antibiotics rather than an empiric trial of, uh, you know, therapy, typically like a rifaximin. So um, the current guidelines uh, suggest that for hydrogen predominant SIBO, um, you can use uh, a couple of different antibiotics. So typically rifaximin, amoxicillin, ciprofloxacin, or... Uh, trimethoprim sulfamoxazole, um, and that would be for a 14-day course. So uh, of these, you know, rifaximin, as I mentioned, is probably the most commonly used, although there is some uh, insurance coverage issues with that, I know, for some people. So there are there is more uh, a few other options if you do run into issues with insurance um, or availability. Um, but as it, since it's the most common, uh, just to mention that rifaximin dosing for this is 550 milligrams 
TID for the total of 14 days. Um, and the other ones, I, I won't go into dosing since they're less commonly used. Um, so that's sort of for the hydrogen predominant uh, patients. Those with the IMO or the methanogen predominant picture on their breath testing, they actually do better with combination therapy. So it can be any one of the um, drugs I mentioned previously for the hydrogen predominant patients plus neomycin. Um, so combination of two antibiotics for a total of 14 days. Um, so that's sort of like the starting point with the antibiotic treatment. Um, interestingly, um, the recurrence rate after one course of antibiotics is pretty high. It can be up to like 40 or 50%. Um, and so if patients do respond clinically after the first course of antibiotics, um, you can repeat it. And I think um, the, the way the FDA has kind of approved it is it can be repeated up to three times. And then after that, it's sort of, uh, you know, you're chasing your tail to try to keep treating this over and over. So I think after, after three uh, courses, it's not really recommended to keep treating for this chronically. Um, and so that's for kind of keeping getting, so the antibiotics obviously is to get the overgrowth at bay. Um, and then as I mentioned previously, you can get a lot of vitamin deficiencies um, and some even some malnutrition with this. So you wanna make sure you're evaluating patients for uh, vitamin deficiencies and treat these accordingly. So specifically um, iron, vitamin B12 and the fat soluble vitamins, you can check those and supplement as needed. Um, and then another kind of hot topic in this area is um, looking at the use of diet and probiotics uh, in the treatment algorithm. And unfortunately, uh, the data is very limited for both of these things. Um, so, and you know, the data that we do have, it's been pretty mixed as to whether it actually makes a difference um, in the treatment. In theory, it, may, it makes a lot of sense that probiotics should have some effect. So I think probably there'll be more research in this area. But right now, um, the guidelines, there's no specific recommendation for using either any specific diet or probiotics um, in SIBO patients. Uh, fantastic. Uh, I'm with you. I wish we knew more. I mean, I guess I'd not say I wish we knew more, but I, I wish we had more approaches when it came to diet and probiotics for this subpopulation. Even with the IBS population, I wish we knew more um, because I think exactly. that's what... I think that should be the goal, um, you know, and probiotics, um, you know, I think at some point we'll have to devote an entire podcast episode just to probiotics. Um, I know we're trying to do more with diet and food as medicine, and that's going to be a whole avenue in the future, which is what patients are looking for and which what, what providers want to do. So more to come, I guess. Um, Thank you again, Dr. Mavilia, for joining me today for the Gut Doctor GI 101 series, and I look forward to future collaborations. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gut Doctor podcast. For additional information about today's topic, please visit ConnecticutGI.org. Your feedback is important to us, so please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Gut Doctor, and if you think you may need to see a gastroenterologist, just trust your gut.